Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Hope you've had a great weekend. We're gonna have some fun this morning. I wanna start with a question that I'm gonna need your help to answer. How many of you have ever had an encounter that forced you to see some things differently? Show of hands. Anybody experience that? So most everybody in the room. Maybe some things about yourself, some things about other people. Sometimes we even have encounters that force us to see how other people experience us, right? It happened to me earlier this month. I had the chance to go on a surf trip to Costa Rica with some friends, and we had been in the country for a few days, and it decided to kind of post up in this one spot where the waves were pretty good, so we stayed there a few days, and uh, it, it broke over a rocky reef, and wherever, you know, where the waves tend to get good, so do the crowd. They kind of pick up. The crowds will come, and and so you, we, if you surf anywhere over a few days in the same place, you'll, you'll tend to notice the same faces in the water. And so I started to see some guys that I'd seen the day before, the day before that, and you just kind of casually, politely give them the bro nod, like, what's up? You don't know them. But anyway, they, you know, just paddling around. And anyway, one of them paddled up next to me at one point that I had seen for several days, and turns out his name was Marco. And Marco was from Switzerland. I had no idea there were surfers in Switzerland, but apparently there are. So Marco and his buddy Daniel decided to go down to Costa Rica. They were there for, they had been there for two months planning to stay for another month. And the reason they came was he said his buddy Daniel was getting ready to start medical school and anticipating how much work he would have to do academically. They knew that they'd have no time to do that uh, when he had started. So they decided, let's just go. Let's go to Costa Rica and have a blast. And I told him I could relate. I had just finished a doctorate like a year before, and it was, you know, it took forever. And he said, oh, good, cool. What kind of doctor are you? And I said, well, I'm a counselor. And I could tell, like, there's a bit of a language barrier. He had no idea what I was talking about. And so I tried to think of another word, and I said, therapy. And he goes, oh, okay. I still don't think he had any idea what I was talking about. But he nodded along, and then a, a set rolled through. He took the first wave. I took the second wave. And then we kind of went different ways from there, and that was it. Marco and I are very close. I expect to hear from him by mail or email at any time. Anyway, you know, it, we weren't the only ones in the water that day. There were a lot of other people, and most of them were guys, but there were a couple of girls in the water as well. And I don't know if you know this, but the ladies in Costa Rica, they kind of have a whole different swimwear program down there. Like, you know, we... It, the kind of the stringy variety where coverage is more or less optional. And so it's just a whole different thing. And, and now I'm not trying to tell any woman what she should or shouldn't wear. That is her choice. But I, I am a big believer in modest is hottest. Like, you know, turn to your neighbor and say modest is hottest. And as, as the dad of a, of a 19-year-old girl who is beautiful on the outside and the inside, I will offer this to any woman who will listen. Don't let, don't let this culture or any person tell you you need to put some part of yourself on display in order to be attractive, because that's just garbage, okay? It's not true. So one of these girls was in the water. She'd, she'd been in there for a while, but hadn't taken any waves that I had seen. And she, you could tell she was a bit nervous. She would paddle for a wave, and then she would quickly back out. She'd paddle again, back out. She just was not comfortable with the size or speed of the waves that day. And you could tell she wanted a smaller wave, but there just were not any on offer. And so I guess she got fed up with it. And at one point, just decided to go for it. So she starts paddling for this wave, and it stands up and pulls her up the face and throws her from the top out into the flats. 
And I mean, she just got detonated. Like the board went one way, she went another, white water everywhere. Everyone who was around it had the same expression. Collectively, collectively they all went, ooh, because they knew that she just got pounded. And I, I saw the whole thing happen and thought, you know, I'm just not, I don't have a lot of confidence that swimsuit's making it through that. So I'm just going to post up over here out wide and out of respect, give her some space to get it sorted. And so I'm just sitting there. And after a while, I start hearing some shouting. And I, I look over to where the voices are coming from. And I can see that it's Marco and two other guys and this girl. And, and then I realize they're shouting for me. They're yelling my name, Dr. Adam, Dr. Adam, Dr. Adam. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the very scene I was trying to avoid. And now I'm being invited into it by name. And so they start paddling her towards me and, and I start paddling towards them. And as we get closer, I can see that Maria had hit the reef. Like she, hit, she was just chewed up from here to here, bleeding. And, and Marco goes, Dr. Adam. Dr. Adam, Maria needs help. You can fix, you can fix. And I'm like, I cannot fix that. Like, maybe I can help her sort out how she feels about it, but I cannot fix what's going on with her leg. She needs to go to the clinic. And I could tell they were very disappointed in me. Like, they, they were looking at me like, you're no doctor. What are you? So they paddled her to the beach. And I realized that in my first encounter with Marco, the conversation that we had gave him an impression of me that was very specific. But in my second encounter with Marco, he walked away with a much different impression, a, very, a much clearer impression of what kind of doctor I was and was not. And in his mind, it was not the very helpful kind of doctor, at least in that moment. And so I'm going to make a hard transition here. You're going to wonder, why do you tell us that story? We get back to it, I promise, Okay. But in the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Walking Away from Jesus, where we're taking a look at different people whose lives were different after they walked away from an encounter with Jesus. And today I want to talk about someone we meet in the New Testament. You know him as Paul, but Paul was not always his name, and that definitely was not always his story. Now, before he encountered Jesus, Paul's name was Saul, and he was one of the key leaders among the Jewish people. He'd studied at one of the best schools. He had one of the best mentors. In every way, Paul had become a very, very big deal within Judaism, which meant that he was really opposed to Jesus and his followers. And that's how we're introduced to him in the book of Acts. So here's how Luke records it, okay? As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So they got up, so Saul got up from the ground. He opened his eyes, but he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, there's a whole lot more to Paul's story, but that gets us started. And before we go any further, let's just take a quick second and pray, okay? 
Father, we are grateful for your word, for the truth and hope that is just resident within it. And we pray that you'll use this time to show us what we need to see about you and ourselves, that we might live in the freedom you died to bring us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at Paul today, I'm going to talk about four things that become clearer when we encounter Jesus. And if you're, if you're using the Seacoast app, you can follow along. That's how you get the outline now. If you want to use the Seacoast app, you can, get the, you can follow along. Here are the four points. But here, there are four things that become clearer when we encounter Jesus. We see God more clearly. We see ourselves more clearly. We see our challenges more clearly. And we see our purpose more clearly. Now, if, if you read the commentaries, most of them will all agree that Paul was probably in his 30s when he had this encounter with Jesus. And up until this point, he had, he had been trained to become a leader in the Jewish faith. He had, he had all the qualifications. I mean, he, he, he was the guy to do it. He had studied under Gamaliel. That was a big deal. He had studied at the school in Tarsus. That was an even bigger deal. He knew all the Jewish traditions. He strictly obeyed them. By all outward appearances, Paul had it together. I mean, if, if you had a question about Judaism, he'd have been the guy to talk to. He could see his future so clearly. He knew exactly where he was going right up until the point when he had this encounter with Jesus and he lost his sight completely. But what's interesting is that in his blindness, he was finally able to see God. In fact, in those three days of blindness, he saw God more clearly than he had in his previous 30 years of life. And I think that's because sometimes, and I want you to hear this, sometimes God has to tear down our religion before we can have the relationship he's offering. Sometimes he has to strip away our religiousness before we can enjoy the relationship he is offering us. Paul thought he understood everything about God and how we were supposed to relate to him. But in this moment of blindness, all that changed in just a second. And that's because when we encounter Jesus, I mean truly encounter him. I don't, I don't mean hang around people who have encountered him. I mean when we encounter him as he truly is, when we are willing to, or in Paul's case, forced to lay aside all of our preconceived ideas about who Jesus is, we walk away with a clearer picture. And we know from John's gospel that if we understand who Jesus is, then we will understand who God is also. Here's what Jesus said in the book of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. It's not at all surprising that years after this encounter, Paul would write something like this. We look at the sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the sun and we see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Another version says simply, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And here, here's why that matters. Here's why that's so great for us today. 
Because if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about something, all you have to do is look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about sinners, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about the poor, look at Jesus. How did he treat them? If you want to know how God feels about pride, look at Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, we walk away with a clearer perspective of who God is. Now, the second point on your outline that we're going to look at is that when we encounter Jesus, we also walk away with a clearer perspective of who we are, who we are. A.W. Tozer said it like this. We can never know who or what we are until we at least know something of who God is. And as an important side note here, just to encourage you, if you've ever felt too far gone for God, like you've just, you've done too much, you've seen too much, you've said too much for God to ever accept you, if you feel like there was no hope for you, then the life of Paul ought to encourage you. Paul killed people. Paul killed God's people. And yet God sought him out and changed his life forever. I want you to notice the order of events here. Starting in verse three, it says, first he saw a light. That's verse three. Then he fell to the ground. That's the beginning of verse four. Then he heard the voice of Jesus. The rest of verse four. First he saw, then he fell, then he heard. The, the, word that, the Greek word that Luke is using here is the word pipto. It means to fall from an, an upright position to a prostrate one. That's what happened to, to Paul. He, he sees Jesus, and then he falls before him, and then he heard him. He saw him, then he fell, then he heard him. It's an important order because it reveals something that is true for all of us, and that's this. Where there has been no bowing to God, there can be very little understanding of God. Where there has been no bowing to God in our lives, there can be very little understanding of God. So if you think you have a grip on who God is, you need to first ask yourself, have I bowed to him? Is it possible that I don't see him clearly? If you look at Isaiah, when he realized who he was looking at in the temple, he said, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord almighty. Or look at Peter when he finally realized who was in the boat with him. He fell to his knees on a pile of smelly fish and said, away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. There's just no room for pride when we really encounter Jesus. For Isaiah, for Peter, for Paul, when they realized who it was that was before them, they had an immediate awareness of God's greatness and their smallness. They were overwhelmed by God's goodness and their own sin, and they were humbled to realize that this God had sought them out. When we encounter Jesus, when we see his greatness, when we realize his goodness towards us, we cannot help but bow in humility. Nobody sees God for who he truly is and thinks, ah, just another God, just like all the other gods that I know about. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. And if you think that, it means you have not truly seen him for who he is. In fact, I think that when we get to heaven, when we get to heaven and we see God for who he truly is, unobstructed view of who God is, we're going to have the same collective expression 
we're going to go, oh, oh, I had no idea. My view of him had been so small. And we'll probably say it from our knees because I think it will feel like the only posture that is appropriate. Another quote by Tozer is this, to admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level. But when we see God for who he truly is, we are arrested with a sense of humility as we see the gap between his perfection and power and our imperfection and helplessness. And when we consider that this perfect God came for us and paid for us with the life of his only son, it only increases that sense of humility in us because it shows us how valuable we are to God. When we encounter Jesus, we walk away with a clearer picture of who we are. Now, we looked at how an encounter with Jesus can help us to see who God is and how it can help us to see who we are. But in this third point, we need to deal with what Paul experienced physically in his encounter with Jesus. Because when we encounter Jesus, we also begin to see our challenges more clearly. Paul's immediate challenge was that he was blind. He couldn't see anything. But if you know Paul's story, you know that he went on to face much greater challenges than this. We'll talk about one in a minute. After this encounter with Jesus, Luke tells us that the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not hear anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever had one of those encounters or one of those experiences where you, uh, you're in a dark place, a physically dark place, and someone takes a picture using a flash on a camera? That ever happened to you? And you find yourself like reeling a little bit because it blinds you. The light from the flash floods your eyes and you can't see anything for a few seconds. Well, I decided to do a little research on why that happens. For this message, And so it turns out that when we're in a, in a brightly lit area, like out in the sunshine or in a, just a room that's bright, our, our eyes, our pupils are constricting. They're constricted so that they can regulate how much light is coming into the eye. It's a way of protecting the eye. It's why we squint when we're in bright areas or why we like to wear sunglasses. It's more comfortable for us. But when you're in a, in a space that's dark, the pupils are unconstricted. They're wide open. They're trying to take in as much light as they can so that they can interpret what they're seeing. And so in that moment, when a, when a camera flashes in a dark place, light floods the eye and you find yourself blinded for just a second. It's kind of like this, like this is an old school camera. I don't know that everybody in the room will recognize this, but some will. It's fascinating technology, really. This is, this is a disposable camera. We would take pictures on this, wind it, take a picture, wind it, and then we would take it to somebody, and we would hand it to them, and we would come back to them a few days later, and they would give us pictures. It was, it was like for real technology. Now it's a joke. <laughs> Nobody does this. 
But I'm going to do this just as an exercise for us, right? I'm going to use the flash on this camera. It's not that powerful, so you don't need to worry about it. And so I'm going to get everybody in here in a picture, everybody online, everybody at the campuses. So you're going to have to squeeze together a little bit. Just lean in. Nobody blink. I don't want to do this twice. Okay. So everybody smile on the count of three. Here we go. One, two, three. A little bit better, right? This, our production crew is amazing. They hollowed out this camera and put a remote control in here that controls the lighting system in this room. It's ridiculous. These guys are amazing. Now, I'll say this too. Until last service, if you, I don't know if you can see that. There are two buttons here. I pushed the green one. The red one, I didn't know what it did, but I decided to push it last service. I'm going to push it again. So just, you know, just fair warning, all right? It's the same kind of effect, but now it's red. Unbelievable. You guys are amazing. Give our production crew a hand. Now, if that's what happens from the flash on a camera, imagine what happens when the light of heaven hits our eye. You know, I I flashed those lights and you guys were blinded for like maybe three seconds, right? Some of you didn't even blink. When the light of heaven hit Paul, he was blind for three days. And this had to be the last thing he expected in his life. Up until now, Paul had been actively fighting against This idea that Jesus was the son of God, the promised Messiah who was raised from the dead. Up until now, Paul had been confident that he could see everything about God. And he refused to accept anything that didn't fit within his view of God. He worked hard to restrict the eyes, to regulate what was coming in, to make sure that it fit within his view of God. He was always in control. He created a very comfortable, very predictable religion for himself. He was vigilant to regulate what came in so that it wouldn't disrupt this religion he was so devoted to. If it sounds familiar, it's because we kind of do the same thing. We also like to create a very comfortable, predictable spiritual experience for ourselves. We like to regulate what's coming in. And have control. We want want a religion that serves us, but is not too demanding of us. Because the last thing we want to do is lose ourselves. Here's the problem with that. Matthew reminds us of something Jesus taught him. And he wrote, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. After Paul's encounter with Jesus, his eyes were so flooded with the light of heaven that he could no longer see anything. He was blind. Couldn't see anything. In one sense, he lost sight of everything. Yet in another, he could finally see everything he'd been searching for. For three days, Paul was blind. For three days, he sat in darkness. And on the third day, light returned. On the third day, light overcame his darkness. Now, where else do we see light overcoming darkness on the third day? We see it at the cross. We see it at the cross. God used this experience in Paul's life to show him and us that the resurrection of Jesus was more than just a possibility. It was a reality. This is what happens when the light of heaven hits our eyes. It changes everything. 
Things come into focus that we couldn't see before, especially as we look at our challenges. What God is showing us here through Paul's encounter with Jesus is that our challenges are never without purpose. This challenge was meant to lead Paul to Christ. And we can be confident of the same thing in our lives, that God is using our trials, our challenges to help us see things that we might not see without them, things that will help move us closer to Jesus. The challenges that Paul faced, they became a starting point for the rest of his life. And they teach us that when we encounter Jesus, we begin to see our challenges more clearly. Now, let's look for a minute back at verse six, just real quick. Jesus tells Paul something. He says, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now, remember when Paul first encountered Jesus, he was humbled. He moved from this upright position to a prostrate one. Yet here we see the opposite thing happening. Jesus tells Paul to get up. To move from that prostrate position to an upright one. And I want you to realize here, recognize that. That Jesus did not humble Paul without also raising him up again. This is important for us because we need to know that God does not humble us to hurt us. He humbles us to set us free. And in setting Paul free, Jesus also prepares him to receive his purpose. Raising him back to his feet, he says, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. You see, in this very brief encounter with Jesus, Paul's about to find out what he was made for. Paul's about to discover his purpose. There's that great quote by William Barclay. You may have heard it. It says there are two great days in a person's life. First is the day they were born. The second is the day they find out why. Paul's about to have that second day. He's about to find out what he was made to do. Now, Paul was arguably one of the most influential people on the planet, in the history of the world. He wrote things 2,000 years ago that are still being read by millions of people today. There aren't many who can claim that. And it all began after an encounter with Jesus that first humbled him and then allowed him to see some things that he couldn't see before. Because when we encounter Jesus, we walk away seeing our purpose more clearly. Now, let me wrap up with just a quick story here. Paul's encounter with Jesus changed how he saw some things. When he walked away from Jesus, he could see God more clearly. He could see himself more clearly. He could see his challenges more clearly and his purpose more clearly. But Paul's encounter with Jesus also changed some other things, some cultural things that God wanted to expose among his people. You see, during this time, first century Israel, first century Middle East, Jewish men had a very specific prayer they would pray every day. They would wake up in the morning and they would say, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish person. Not a great attitude to have towards any group of people, but this is where they were. But after some time, Paul found himself in the Greek city of Macedonia. And it tells it, Luke tells us that on one Sabbath day, he and his friends went to the place of prayer 
which was probably just a home church. And when they got there, they started to teach. There were several women there. Luke tells us that one of them was named Lydia, and she was a business owner. Luke also tells us that God opened her heart to Paul's message and that she and her whole household were baptized. Sometime later, they went again to this place of prayer. And on their way, they encountered a slave girl who had the ability to predict the future. And so her owners would make money off of her by getting her to predict the future for other people. And so, you know, seems like it might be a cool thing. But the, as you look at it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The literal, comp, the, the literal translation here is, is just more complex. The literal translation is that she had a spirit of divination. It's the Greek word puthon, from which we get our English word python. You may see where this is going, but it meant that she had the spirit of the serpent within her, the great serpent or the spirit of the devil. Not such a great thing. And at one point, she so relentlessly pestered Paul and Silas that Paul turned around and commanded the spirit to leave her. And as it did, her owners realized they had just lost their way of using her to make money. And so they went and complained to the authorities, and the authorities had Paul and Silas beaten and then thrown in prison. From prison, Paul and Silas were worshiping God, probably because they saw their challenges a little differently at this point in their life. And as they were worshiping, a violent earthquake shook the prison doors off their hinges. They were free. They could have walked right out, but they didn't walk out. They stayed in their cell, probably because they knew if they walked out, the Roman jailer who was guarding them would have been killed for letting them escape. So they stayed where they were. And when the Roman jailer realized that they could have left but didn't leave, he came to them and fell at their feet and said, what must I do? To be saved. He had never seen love like that before. And then Luke tells us that he and his whole household were saved that day. Now remember the prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Paul would have known that prayer. In fact, before this encounter with Jesus, he would have prayed it many times. Yet here, he shares the love and mercy of Jesus with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Demolishing some of the cultural boundaries that existed in that day. And making a loud statement that the gospel, this gospel of Jesus, is for every person. Now, here's the point. Paul's encounter with Jesus didn't just stop with Paul. It rippled out to other people. It even tore through cultural boundaries. Paul's encounter with Jesus was not only about him. It was about everyone else that he would encounter. When we encounter Jesus, as we walk away from Jesus, like Paul, we become an extension of his light and mercy and kindness in this world. And this is what, what makes our upcoming opportunity with Serve Day such a, such a great thing. 
Because on July 10th, we're going to join more than a thousand churches from around the world to make a difference in our communities. No matter where you live, you can be involved in it. No matter what campus you attend, you can jump in on this. Just go to the Serve Day app, find out what project is closest to your campus. If you don't live near a Seacoast campus, don't let that stop you. You can still make a difference in your community. Just figure out a project that excites you and go do it. Only thing I'd say is do it with somebody. Because one of the best things about Serve Day is doing it in community with other people as collectively we get to show the communities that we serve that as we have encountered Jesus, we have walked away changed people. We're now a living, breathing picture of the love and power of Jesus. I will make you this promise, though. If you decide to join us for Serve Day, I will bet that I'll bet you this fancy camera here that uh, you will get as much out of it, if not more, than the people you're serving. There's a great quote that says, the world does not need a definition of who Jesus is. What the world needs is a demonstration of who Jesus is. That's our opportunity on Serve Day this year. You know, for years I've been, I've been sharing that quote. And I've been telling people that it's by a guy named G.K. Chesterton. Read several of his books, and I thought for this message, I probably ought to figure out which book he said it in. So I start thumbing through all my books and couldn't find it. Started again, thumbing through my books, looking at the highlights, couldn't find it. So I went to Google. It's what every good scholar does, right? Went to Google. Google had no idea. Google just looked at me funny like we don't know. And I thought, man, this is terrible. I've been telling people all this time that this was by a guy named G.K. Chesterton, and maybe I've been misleading them. This is awful. And I thought, wait, no, wait a minute. This is, this is amazing because if he didn't say it and Google doesn't know who said it, guess who said it now? It's my quote now. Who will know? I really do think he said it. I'm just gonna have to find the source. The world does not need a definition of who Jesus is. What the world needs is a demonstration. We get to be that demonstration of who Jesus is. By coming together to show the communities where we are, that we have encountered Jesus. And as we have walked away from that encounter, we now have a clearer idea of who God is, who we are, what our challenges are all about, and what our purpose is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that um, we get to see Pictures like this in your word. Pictures that can transform every part of our lives. I pray that we would have whatever it is we need, whether it's just a willingness to slow down, to enjoy that encounter, or the courage to take a step towards you, that we might experience what you are waiting to offer us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.